All right, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy? Book of 1 Timothy. We have been uh, working our way through this letter. Uh, we are coming to the end of chapter 1. 1 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to a pastor named Timothy. Timothy is a young man. He was raised in the Christian faith. He was well regarded by other believers in his community. And when he met Paul, it was only natural that Timothy come under the, under the mentorship of Paul. And together they worked to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, and they established local churches. And one of those churches was the church of Ephesus, where Paul had left Timothy to pastor. Paul, Paul is writing this letter, letter giving instruction for Timothy uh, on how to pastor this church. And, and Paul expected that this letter would be read in front of the congregation, so it was intended for their edification as well. And by way of review, uh, Paul began this letter by giving t- uh, a charge to Timothy. He urges Timothy to remain at Ephesus, uh, which is in verse 3, so that he would charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. There were these false teachers in the church who had wandered away from the truth. They had, they had turned away from sound doctrine that accords with the gospel, which we see in verse 11. And last week, we looked at Paul's testimony Verses 12 through 17, Paul explained how the charge that he is giving to Timothy was first entrusted to him. I lost my place in my notes. Paul Paul was one of those certain persons before he was entrusted with the gospel. He, He persecuted the church. He opposed the message of the gospel. But God, in his sovereign grace and perfect patience, he converted Paul. Right? Christ appeared to him on the road to Emmaus, and upon seeing the glory of God and, and, and the resurrected Christ, Paul saw his sin for what it really was. Right? Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. He saw his sin. He turned from his sin. He turned to Christ, and Christ entrusted him as an apostle with the charge that Paul himself once violently opposed. And this week, we're going to turn from Paul's testimony, from him praising God for how he has entrusted him with this charge, and he turns to Timothy. Paul entrusts Timothy with what was entrusted to him. And we're going to unpack that this morning in verses 18 through 20. So we'll read our text this morning. 1 Timothy 18 through 20. 1, 18 through 20. The Apostle Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Dearly Father, we come before you this morning, uh, opening your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the truth of your word, that we might see Christ clearly, and that 
By the power of your Holy Spirit, we might be conformed more into the image of Christ. God, would you help me by the power of your Spirit to speak clearly, to speak truthfully, and to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Our main point this morning, and really the central theme of this text, is this. God entrusts pastors and elders of the church to defend the gospel. God entrusts the pastors and elders of the church to defend the gospel. We're going to organize our time by asking two questions about this statement. What does this mean, and what does this look like? What does it mean that God entrusts pastors and elders to defend the gospel? And what does it look like when God entrusts pastors and elders to defend the gospel? First, what does this mean? Paul begins by saying, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. What does it mean that Paul entrusts Timothy with this charge? Let's define the word entrust. To entrust means to deposit. To, to commend something to someone for protection or safety. Think about it like depositing money at a bank. When you give your money to a bank, they don't own your money, but you're giving them a specific authority to hold it, to protect it, to invest it, and, and they're responsible for using it the way you intended it to be used. You're trusting them with a certain authority over it. Paul writes later in 1 Timothy 6.20, he says, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. When Paul entrusts Timothy, he's recognizing that as an elder of the church, God has given Timothy authority to defend the gospel. Pastors and elders have authority from God. You may be asking, why do you say it's from God? It, It says in the text that Paul is the one entrusting Timothy. Well, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior. We saw that in verse 1. Right? His authority comes from God. We're going to come back to Paul and Timothy in a moment, but first and foremost, we must realize that a pastor's authority can be traced back to God. All authority comes from God. We see this clearly described in Romans 13 verse 1. Now, in Romans 13, Paul is writing about the sphere of authority God entrusts to the governing authorities. Today, we're talking about the sphere of the church. But his reasoning in this passage is what's important to know. Look at verse 1 of Romans 13. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. God is the sovereign creator and sustainer of life. He has a position of authority. He is over all things. And he has the power of authority. He executes his perfect will. This means that any authority that exists, exists only because God allows it. Authority is delegated or instituted by God. So all authority comes from God and it has been given to Christ. All authority has been given to Christ. Christ, when giving the Great Commission, Christ, what does he say? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How did this happen? What does this mean? Well, to understand this, we have to go back to the garden. When Adam and Eve, the first people, fell in the garden, 
Adam failed to use the authority God gave him as God intended it to be used. Adam was responsible to go with Eve and have dominion over the earth. He was to exercise authority on the earth as God commanded them. And God gave them one prohibition. As a reminder of their position under God's authority, they were not to eat of the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right, we know that ultimately Adam failed to do this. When the serpent came to Adam and Eve in the garden, the serpent tried to manipulate the word of God. And Adam, instead of using his authority to defend the word of God and subsequently to protect his wife, Adam said nothing. Instead of crushing the head of the serpent, which his obedience to this would have led him to, the, led him to receive the blessing of eternal life, Adam disobeyed God's command and ate the fruit from the tree. Adam and Eve sinned against God and suffered the penalty for sin, eternal separation from God, eternal suffering under the wrath of God that sin justly deserves. Right? Any use of authority contrary to God's intended purpose is an act of rebellion against a holy God. And through Adam, the representative for all mankind, we would have done no differently. Sin entered the world, and sin spread to all men, all people. Everyone is under the curse of sin. We're deceived by sin, enslaved to sin, and in perpetual rebellion against God. But God had mercy. God is a merciful God. He had mercy on his enemies. He sent Christ, the second Adam, to do what the first Adam failed to do. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 verse 8, he says, And being found in human form, Christ, God himself, took on flesh. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ came as a man. He perfectly obeyed the Father. And on the cross, he crushed the head of the serpent. He paid the penalty for our sin and reconciled us to God. His blood washes away our sin. And so whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So it's through faith in Christ that we have peace with God. Because anyone can have peace with God through Christ, he became the new representative for mankind. He received what Adam could have received. The blessing of God. Paul continues in Philippians chapter 2. He says in verse 9, Therefore, because of what Christ did on the cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth is the inheritance received from the Father for his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross. And we, those of us in Christ, those whom Christ died for, the church, are participants in this inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22 says this, it says, And he, being, being God the Father, put all things under his, Christ's, feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God the Father gave God the Son all authority and he gave him authority as head of the church. 
And how does Christ exercise his authority over the church? Well, Christ entrusts the church to wake the world up to the reality that Christ has all authority over all things. We are to realize the dominion mandate that was abandoned in the garden and fulfilled in Christ. We are to fulfill the Great Commission through the proclamation of the gospel. And this is done through the church. Christ entrusts authority to faithful men in the church. We see Christ do this when he gave the Great Commission. He entrusted it first to the apostles. They were the audience of the Great Commission. Matthew writes this in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. He says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Right? They're recognizing his authority. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now I want to be clear. Every Christian is a participant in the Great Commission. But here we often miss this. Christ is giving the Great Commission to the apostles. Paul understood this even though he wasn't present during the Great Commission. He was the apostle untimely born. In 1 Timothy 1.11, he mentions that he too has been uniquely entrusted with the gospel. Paul and the apostles understood that they were entrusted by Christ with authority to establish the church that would go on to fulfill the Great Commission. And it's with Christ's authority that Paul entrusts Timothy with the defense of the gospel. He's to continue working to fulfill the Great Commission, to teach the nation's obedience to Christ. So to recap, all authority comes from God, and it's been given to Christ. Christ was given to the church, and Christ entrusted his authority to the apostles, and through them, Christ entrusted it to pastors, starting with men like Timothy, and Christ has successfully built his church through the ages until the present day, where we stand with pastors and elders and the body of Christ here at Deer Park Fellowship and among churches all around the world. Amen? Okay, so what's the application? Why does this matter? Why is it important for Timothy and the church in Ephesus to understand this? Why is it important for us to understand that God entrusts pastors and elders with authority to defend the gospel? Well, we we need good authority. We need godly exercise and submission to authority. I mean, we, we live in a culture that is constantly rebelling against the authority of God. There are many ungodly authorities. We're we're a people who despise authority the way that God intended it to function. And the solution begins with repentance in the church. We've We've been influenced by the culture more than we realize. We need faithful men who are willing to faithfully lead the church in submission to the word of God. And we need people who are willing to submit to the word of God. Turn with me for a moment to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. In 1 Peter 5, the Apostle Peter, he, he gives us a framework to begin thinking about authority in the church. Verses 1 through 4 of 
chapter 5 and 1 Peter say this. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter shows us that shepherding the flock well, using good authority, begins with an understanding that this is God's flock. Pastors are under shepherds. They are under the authority of Christ, the chief shepherd, right? He's the the good shepherd that laid down his life for his sheep. He spilt his blood on the cross to bring them out of bondage to sin and death and into his kingdom of adopted sons of God. They are his sheep. So because the pastor's authority has been given by Christ, they are responsible to Christ for their ministry. Pastors will stand before God and give an accounting for their ministry. And in light of this, in light of the authority of Christ, Peter gives several descriptions of pastoral ministry. With this understanding in mind, he exhorts pastors to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And if their authority is from Christ, shepherding is not a duty to fulfill. It's, it's an act of worship to God. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, Peter says. If their authority is from Christ, shepherding is not about what I get, but God receiving glory. And, and, and Peter says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. If their authority is from Christ, it's not my will be done. It's not the, the elders will be done, but God's will be done. And these exhortations, they, they provide a framework for pastors and elders to shepherd faithfully and by God's grace receive the unfading crown of glory. Pastors and elders are to shepherd the flock of God. And then Peter goes on, he turns to the congregation. In verses 5 through 7 of 1 Peter chapter 5, he says this. He says, likewise, likewise, just as, just as the pastors and elders are to recognize the authority of Christ, that this is Christ's flock, so are everyone else. First, he addresses the younger. He says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. So in light of the authority entrusted to the elders by Christ, Peter exhorts everyone to humble themselves under their authority. Coming under the authority of the church is an act of humility. Why is this an act of humility? You're acknowledging you can't live the Christian life on your own. We need oversight. We can be easily deceived by sin. It's a recognition that I need help. And ultimately, since Christ is the head of the church, coming into the church is coming under Christ. You're coming under the mighty hand of God. 
the church is the safest place you can be. Not, not because the church is so great, because, but because Christ, our chief shepherd, our good shepherd, is so good and he cares for his sheep. Turn with me back to First Timothy. Now, now, as Paul is reminding Timothy of the authority and responsibility that, that he has been entrusted with, Keep in mind that Timothy is, is facing difficulties in his ministry. Right? There's disorder in the church of Ephesus. Right? There's, there's dysfunction. There's significant opposition. This vision that Peter gives, it doesn't quite look like that on the ground level. I mean, what, what, if, what if things don't take shape the way Peter describes? Well, well, the Apostle Paul gives two encouragements to Timothy here. I, that, that someone should look to as evidence that they have been entrusted to defend the gospel, to be encouraged that they have been entrusted with the gospel. So this brings us to our second question. What does it look like? Well, what does it look like when God entrusts pastors and elders to defend the gospel? First, we see there's evidence of the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verses 18. And 19. So he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. When Paul's entrusting Timothy with the defense of the gospel, he's doing so in accordance with the prophecies made about Timothy. Now, before we go any further, we, we have to ask, uh, answer the question that everyone's asking. What, what about this prophecy here? You're, I don't see Holy Spirit. Uh, what, what is prophecy? Well, well, prophecy is a message from God. It's the proclamation of the Word of God by those inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they reveal the will of God. Prophecy is, thus saith the Lord. This is what Adam, the first prophet, was was supposed to do in the garden. This is what the prophets proclaimed in the nation of Israel. And we bring this understanding to the New Testament. Christ, the better prophet than Adam, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He's the word of God. And in the apostolic church, that is the, the church that existed during the lives of the apostles, prophecy was a spiritual gift inspired by the Holy Spirit as a direct revelation of the word of God. Prophecy was a spiritual gift given to establish the early church. We see this when Paul laid hands on the elders of Ephesus, one, one of which was Timothy. The, the presence of the Holy Spirit was evident in a unique way. He revealed that Timothy was to be the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Acts 19 verse 6, uh, Luke records this. He says, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Paul refers to this in 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. He says, Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So the Holy Spirit specifically identified Timothy through prophecy. He was the one to be entrusted as the pastor of the church by the Apostle Paul. So when Paul says he's entrusting Timothy to defend the gospel in accordance with the prophecies, 
The Apostle Paul is not entrusting him based on his own discretion. He's doing so according to the evidence of the Holy Spirit in Timothy's life. Paul is recognizing what God is doing. Now, we don't, we don't have the exact words that Paul said to Timothy or that the, what the prophecies were made about him. But we do know that God has been working in Timothy's life from a young age. He was raised in the faith. He was taught the scriptures from childhood. And and as Timothy matured, he was recognized by the Apostle Paul and other believers as being a man of God who knew the word of God and was gifted for ministry. We see this in Acts chapter 16. All along the way, the Holy Spirit was evident in Timothy's life. God was blessing him. He had his hand over him. So when the prophecies were made, They were a confirmation of what God was already doing. When God entrusts the defense of his word to faithful men, the Holy Spirit is evident. Paul is encouraging Timothy that he has been called by God to do this. Now we have a bit of a challenge in front of us, right? If if the spiritual gift of prophecy, this, this gift of divine revelation of the Holy Spirit during the apostolic church is what confirms that God has entrusted Timothy and is to encourage him as he does ministry, how can he and the other elders after him distinguish when the Holy Spirit is entrusting other faithful men with the, after the apostolic age ends? And how can we recognize and be encouraged that God is entrusting faithful men today? What evidence of the Holy Spirit can we see? Well, we have a clue to answer this in Paul's exhortation to Timothy in the next phrase. Paul goes on to say, he says, by them, by these prophecies, you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. Now, upon first glance, uh, this may seem like Paul is telling Timothy to use these prophecies as a means to fulfill his pastoral duties. Uh, he's to use these prophecies to wage warfare. Now let's, let's just consider this for a moment. When, when people oppose Timothy, should he stand up to them and say, well, I'm the pastor now. I'm the one that God appointed to be here. I'm the chosen one. I'm the captain now. Therefore, you must listen to what I say. Okay, clearly the answer is no, especially in light of 1 Peter 5. This would be considered domineering over those in your charge. Paul is not teaching Timothy how to wage spiritual warfare. The the Apostle Paul clearly lines this out in in Ephesians chapter 6, which we're going to turn to in a moment. Paul is encouraging Timothy to wage warfare, to defend the gospel, in light of the prophecies previously made about him. Just as the evidence of the Holy Spirit confirmed Timothy's calling— Timothy is to look to the evidence of the Spirit for confirmation and encouragement that God is at work as he wages spiritual warfare. If the Holy Spirit is working in his ministry, he can hold his faith with a good conscience. So for us, if we look at the methods the church uses to fight spiritual warfare, we will see evidences of the Holy Spirit that encourage us that God is at work. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 10 through 18. It 
Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 18. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, finally, now he had just, for the first three chapters of Ephesians, reveled in the glory of the gospel, what Christ has done. And then in the last three chapters, he describes how we live in light of what Christ has done. And he concludes by saying this, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore... These are the methods. Okay, here, here we go. How do we fight? Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace and in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and and supplication. In this passage, I, I want to highlight five evidences of the Spirit that we can look to to confirm that God is at work. If these things are evident in the church through the ministry of the elders, we can be encouraged that God is at work with, with us and within us, and that the elders have been entrusted by God to defend the gospel. First, we have a commitment to the Word of God. Paul calls the Ephesian church to fasten on the belt of truth and to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The church is to commit themselves to the Word of God. The Holy Spirit inspired it, the Holy Spirit preserves it, and the Holy Spirit illuminates it so that we may come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the church is committed to the Word, we can have confidence that the Spirit is working. Second, the centrality of the gospel. Paul calls the church to put on shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel, re repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, this is the application of the word of God. It's the so white of the Bible. It is the message by which the Holy Spirit brings about the conversion of the soul. When the gospel is central to the teaching of the church, we can have confidence that the Spirit is working. Third, conversion. Paul calls the church to take up the shield of faith, to take the helmet of salvation. When we're struggling, we, we often can be reminded of our justification before God. We are saved eternally in the hand of Christ forever, and we can be encouraged by that. Right? Salvation is the fruit of the proclamation of the word of God according to the word of God. Those who hear the preaching of the word, they respond to the call of the gospel, they repent and place their trust in Christ, they have been saved. The Holy Spirit has regenerated their heart. They have been brought from death to life. When there are conversions in the church, it is evidence that the Holy Spirit is moving. God is working. Fourth, zeal for righteousness. Paul calls the church to take up the breastplate of righteousness. Those who have been converted by the Spirit will be empowered by the Spirit to obey God. They've turned from their sin to Christ. The, the sin they once 
loved, they now hate. And the righteousness that is Christ that they once hated, they now love. They have been granted Christ's righteousness and desire to live righteously because the Holy Spirit is at work within them. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 verse 10, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Fifth, a commitment to prayer. Paul calls the church to be praying at all times in the Spirit. Those who love righteousness learn very quickly that we can only live righteously because of Christ and his righteousness. We must depend on his spirit to empower us to live righteously. We cannot do it on our own. We do this through prayer. We ask God, help me. When the church is committed to prayer in the spirit, this is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work within them. So when the Holy Spirit is working, there will be a commitment to the word, a central focus on the gospel, and by God's grace, there will be conversions resulting in a zeal zeal for righteousness and a commitment to prayer. I mean, when we see these things happening in our midst, we can wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience, knowing that God has entrusted the pastors and elders of the church to defend the gospel. I mean, that sounds great, right? That sounds awesome. We should long for these things. We should desire earnestly that God would work in this way in our church, in our city, in our nation, and pray fervently that Christ would be exalted, that God would be glorified, and that many would come to saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but as Paul is reminding Timothy to look to the evidence of the Spirit, we, we, we have to keep in mind that Timothy is most likely wrestling with discouragement. I mean, he, has, he has physical ailments. He had enemies. And according to church history, we know that he was martyred for his faith. Most of the time, he was pastoring in dire circumstances. I mean, what if Timothy doesn't doesn't visibly see the fruit of his ministry? What, What if he seems to be facing constant opposition? He's committed to the word, he's presenting the gospel, he's committed to the word, he's presenting the gospel, but, but, but all he is met with is rejection after rejection, disappointment after disappointment, hardship after hardship, year after year. Paul reminds Timothy that another evidence that God has entrusted him to defend the gospel is that there is opposition. There will be opposition to those who have been entrusted with the gospel. Turn back to our text in 1 Timothy. Paul, Paul gives two examples in this encouragement to Timothy of those who opposed their ministry and may be presently causing issues for Timothy. Look with me at verse 19. Paul writes this, he says, By rejecting this, Rejecting this charge, this this proclamation of the gospel according to the word of God, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here, Here Paul identifies two men who have rejected sound doctrine and have made a ruin of their faith in Christ. These men profess Christ, but they're denying him in their teaching and in their lifestyle. In their examples, we we get a picture of what opposition to the gospel looks like. So what does it look like when Christ entrusts 
the gospel, the defense of the gospel to pastors and elders in the church, there's opposition, starting with a rejection of sound doctrine. When, when opposition to the gospel comes, there will be people who hold to doctrines that contradict it. Take Hymenaeus, for example. Interesting name. He's most likely the, the person that Paul refers to in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And in verse 16, he calls Timothy to avoid his teaching. He says, but, uh, starting in verse 16, he says, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who, are, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So Hymenaeus, one of these opponents of Timothy, he believed a false doctrine. He denied the bodily resurrection of believers. Now we know from our study of 1 Corinthians 15 that the bodily resurrection is inseparably connected to the resurrection of Christ. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. Verse 13 through 14. The doctrine that Hymenaeus believed ultimately denied the resurrection of Christ, which is essential to the gospel. And his denial of the gospel was his attempt to justify his ungodly lifestyle. False teaching comes from sinful desires. One commentator who was explaining this passage, he wrote this. He said, Bad theology has its roots in bad morals. Those who teach error do so in order to substitute a system that accommodates for their sin. You see, false doctrine doesn't just float around on YouTube. It gets under our skin like gangrene. Doctrine comes out of our fingertips. When opposition comes, there's a rejection of sound doctrine. And second, there's a resistance to correction. Those who have rejected sound doctrine and those who refuse to submit to correction, they often go hand in hand. But some people like Apollos in Acts chapter 18, they listen to correction when approached by Priscilla and Aquila. He listened and he proclaimed the gospel more accurately. But both of the men that Paul mentions here in our text have refused to listen to his counsel. Look at Alexander. He's most likely the Alexander the coppersmith described in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul writes this, But Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Although Alexander and Hymenaeus heard the truth, they professed to be Christians the whole time. They, they refused to listen to the correction of the apostle. And this, this, this caused tons of problems for Paul and Timothy. And they, they had to be constantly on guard. They had to be watching out for them and the effect of their influence on other believers. So, so what did Paul do? What, did, what is Timothy to do? What does it look like when those entrusted with the gospel face opposition? Because Paul Paul's opponents, they know the truth. They know sound doctrine. But in their unrighteousness, they're suppressing it because they love their sin. And since they're unwilling to listen to correction, Paul says he handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, we, we don't know exactly what the Apostle Paul said to these men. Just like we don't know exactly the prophecies given to Timothy. What we do know is that Paul used his authority as an apostle to discipline these men. They were excommunicated from the church. Their opposition 
their refusal to listen to correction resulted in excommunication. Paul uses the same language that he talks about uh, here in 1 Corinthians when he instructs the church to excommunicate the man who was sleeping with his mother's wife. That man was to be barred from taking the Lord's Supper. To, to be excommunicated, to be, to be removed from the membership of the church, means to be barred from the supper. Why, why is this? Well, because it's the Lord's Supper. It's a, it's a means of grace that God's given to us to strengthen our faith, to encourage us that we are united with Christ. And those who can't take it, they're recognized as being separated from Christ, without God and without hope, not having peace with God. And if you're not in the hand of Christ, you're in the hand of Satan. So, so the result of this opposition was severe discipline outside the care of the church, which is the most dangerous place for the soul. But this is not the end of the line for Paul, right? This is not the end of the line. Because he says he handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul does not leave them without hope for redemption. Paul holds out hope. Right? This, this, this excommunication, this, this word that we know little about, experientially, most likely, is an act of corrective discipline. This, the, the objective is to provide an opportunity for them to see their sin and by God's grace repent and be restored to Christ and enter back into the fellowship of the church. All right, this is why Paul, at the beginning of this letter, he said the aim of our charge is love. Paul sees the opposition as an opportunity for redemption, reconciliation. And what is Timothy to think about this? I mean, he's, he's reading this letter. He's discouraged. And he's reminded of these two men who are wrecking havoc in the church. I mean, how can he not despair? How is this evidence that God has entrusted him to defend the gospel? Well, to answer this, we, where do we look? We look to Christ. Right? When, when Timothy reads this, and just as we should, whenever we read anything in Scripture, we should look to Christ. Because what, did, what opposition did Christ face? The worst. He went to the cross. And what was the result of that opposition? The best. Eternal life with Christ for all, for forever. Right? The very opposition that Christ received was the means that God used to accomplish our redemption. By his stripes, we are healed. So in light of the finished work of Christ, the, the, the opposition to Timothy's ministry will become the fuel of the church. Opposition to the gospel is the very evidence that shows us that God is at work. If you're in Christ and you're facing opposition, God is at work within you. If sin rears its ugly head again, Christ is being formed in you. We know, we know ultimately that Timothy died defending the gospel. And here we stand today, right? So look to Christ and, and we find life and death. We find hope in opposition. A few takeaways for us this morning. We have these in your, your worship guide. The local church should be the safest place for sinners. Coming under the authority of the elders means coming under the care of Christ's under-shepherds. He has placed them here to protect your soul. To young people, 
and this is not to the exclusion of everyone else, come under the authority of the church by joining church membership. Third, pray that we would look to the evidence of the Holy Spirit for spiritual encouragement, not to worldly measures of success. And four, pray that God would give us grace to find hope amidst opposition in life and ministry. It's the very thing God uses to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning recognizing that you have done a great work for us in Christ on the cross. God, you sent your son to die. He faced the greatest opposition, every temptation, yet he was without sin. And he, because of that, he became the perfect sacrifice for us. And Lord, I pray that, that we would see that, that we would recognize that. God, we would see the, the beauty of the gospel, the, the glory of the resurrected Christ, seated above all things at the right hand of the Father. Lord, I pray that you would empower us to walk in obedience in, in, the, in the face of opposition, that we might recognize all that you've done for us. God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.